0: Like my son Jake just asked we're gonna be uh, in Revelation this morning again picking up our study in chapter 7 uh, as we know the series is called the time is near and I think the more we look around we should realize that the time is near the time is near but the title of today's message as we hopefully will cover all of chapter 7 is a great multitude a great multitude and I've been reading through Jeremiah again uh, in my personal time at night and uh, I was reminded as I read this these verses the other day of our study in Revelation, uh, specifically of the four horsemen, and just to seeing that this pattern of things that God does sometimes. In Jeremiah 15, uh, verses 1 through 4, uh, the first part of verse 4, and this is actually from the complete uh, Jewish version, so it's not. Um, not one you want to do a word study on but i think it's a good translation it says then adonai said to me being jeremiah even if moses and samuel were standing in front of me my heart would not turn toward this people drive them out of my sight get them out of here and when they ask you where they should go tell them that this is what adonai says those destined for death to death those destined for the sword to sword those destined for famine to famine and those destined for captivity to captivity imagine if that was what the word of the lord gave you that would be some tough word to deliver right he goes on and says i will assign them four kinds of scourges says adonai the sword to kill the dogs to drag away birds in the air and wild animals to devour and destroy i will make them an object of horror to all the kingdoms of the earth. And we'll see that the world system becomes an object of horror to all the, to all the merchants of the, of the world later on in Revelation. But we see that God, even His own people, when their hearts were hardened, even His own nation, when they wouldn't listen to Him, when they didn't obey Him, there came a point when God said, the word for them is death, captivity, famine, and worse. That if you're not going to listen, if you won't even heed my warnings and you continue in sin, There's only one end, and it's not my fault. It's destruction. But in Revelation, we remember John, the Apostle John, being older, was exiled to the island of Patmos. Uh, He saw Jesus revealed in glory. That's what Revelation is. It's the revelation of Jesus. We get to see Jesus for who he really is in eternity, in the heavenly realm, not just some wise man, not just some teacher of God. And more so, not even just the person who died on the cross for us, even though that is a culmination of many things. We get to see him as he is revealed, God, all-powerful, strong, and mighty. We remember the seven churches, lampstands, the messages to the churches, uh, the seven spirits of God. We saw that scroll that was written on both sides. and was sealed, seven seals, and no one in heaven and earth, under the earth, could open it. And John wept. But that the lamb who appeared to be slain, who was in the midst of the throne, he could open them. And then we remember that he began to open them. As we study, the first four seals were the first four quote-unquote horsemen of the apocalypse that even society knows about. The first, the white horse with a rider and a bow and a crown. Two, a fiery red horse with a rider with a large sword. If you want to know more about this, go back to our previous study and listen to that. Three, there was a black horse with a pair of scales. And four, a pale green horse, uh, a corpse color like death. We went, last time we saw about the fifth seal that martyrs, people were slain for the word of God and their testimony. They're given a white robe and they're told even to wait a little while longer until their number is complete. And that really speaks that sometimes we must wait for the answer or deliverance that God has for us because the bigger picture isn't complete yet. Maybe our time has come. We've been martyred or we've been put in a situation, but God is doing something bigger than just what's going on with you and me personally. Sometimes we have to wait, and these martyrs had to wait for the, all the murders to be brought in. We saw the sixth seal, the signs in heaven, that God showed that he had power over the earth, power over heaven. We saw a great earthquake. The sun turned dark like sackcloth. The moon like blood. We discussed maybe ways that this could happen, whether it's supernatural, or just simply God darkens it, or whether it's from an event on earth, uh, like uh, some you know smoke billing out of the earth or an asteroid hitting. Um, it could affect all these things, but also stars of the heaven fall that we see that they fall. Even we, we read, um, you know, the allusions to this about even when Satan fell, you know, perhaps in the timelines, the way these things line up. Uh, and then the sky recedes like a scroll. We know that that happens at the end, which again leads me to believe that these uh, initial things sometimes talk of a larger picture of the whole period of tribulation. And then the later judgments come in and zoom in and give us a more specific outline for it Uh, but we have to remember that John is seeing John from 2,000 years ago who's long since passed was taken up to heaven and seeing future history future even to us this stuff hasn't happened even for us yet 2,000 years after John I believe it's soon but when he's in heaven he's able to see future history as it is presently happening that the the power of eternity is that it's not bound by time And so he's able to see things that haven't happened yet from our perspective and his. And so he's he's shown the future. He's in fact, in a sense, brought to the future and shown what happens there. We Remember that the people began to hide in the mountains and want the mountains to fall on them rather than repent and turn to God. Their hearts were so hard that they would rather be crushed than bow to Jesus. But as we get in here uh, uh, to read... Uh, we're going to see that there's some controversy and even some cults have arisen out of just one little verse that we're going to read uh, together today. Um, but can we make an agreement as we get into it that we're not going to get carried away with it and we're not going to go off and start a cult based on one little verse in the Bible? Because remember, when we read the Bible, we need the Bible to interpret the Bible. We need the Holy Spirit to interpret We can't just take one little verse and make it mean what we want it to mean. And God, again this morning, we pray that, Lord, you would speak to us in your word, give us a divine insight. And God, we do pray that you would come. You would show us, like John, things that are about to happen and give us that heavenly insight into them. But most of all, may, we, may it cause us to bow our knee to you and not be crushed by the mountains, not be crushed by the hard times that we're in or our sin, but to bow to you, uh, for you were crushed and bruised for us. We thank you for that, God. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. So we're going to look at the first eight verses uh, as the first part, but I'm actually going to divide them up into chunks. Uh, So we're going to start out with just verse one of chapter seven. It says, After these things I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding the four winds of the earth, that the wind should not blow on the earth and on the sea, or on any tree. And that's a short verse. But it says a lot. And that's why I want to unpack it here. I don't want to skip over and I don't want to miss the magnitude of what's being said here. To think of this. That there are four angels. One in the north. One in the west. One in the south. And one in the east. I know the earth is a globe. I'm not a flat earther. I know that there's not actually corners. And I don't believe that that's what's actually saying. It's just an expression. We believe that these angels will spread out over the earth. And they're supernaturally holding the winds of the earth back. And this has to be supernatural. Well, yeah, they're angels, but angels can have practical effects on the world. Right? Remember like with Lot and Sodom and Gomorrah was destroyed, but the winds blowing and air circulating, at least to my scientific knowledge, is based on several factors. One being the sunlight heating parts of the earth differently than the others creating convection currents, hot air and cold air, changing places based on areas that are cold and areas that are hot, so it creates a circuit, um, sort of like what your air conditioner does. Uh, there's the poles, the night side, summer zones, winter zones based on the angles of the Earth. But on top of that, we have the rotation of the Earth mixed in. The ground's moving, the air's moving and spinning, there's jet streams, there's hurricanes, there's storms, there's weather patterns. And all over the world, there's weather patterns that have existed and change, and there's seasons and seasons of seasons. You know, they think it's global warming right now, but they haven't seen what's about to come. And even here, in uh, where we are in Montana, we generally get storms that blow from the west, or sometimes come up from the southwest, blowing a little north here in the summertime. And then uh, as the jet streams shift, we'll get a lot of Arctic air that blows down from the north uh, in the winter. And usually it comes to the east of us along the mountain range there, and we're a little bit sheltered from that. But it's kind of you can kind of once you've seen it for a while, you begin to see these patterns happen. But all of this, all over the world, will stop. These angels are going to hold all of the wind. Imagine if no wind was blowing. Imagine you know like on a cool or a warm or whatever day it is, on a still day. But it's over the whole earth. You know, if there's still airplanes flying, they'll probably make uh, their, their times of destination will be different because they won't be having the jet streams and everything. What would happen to the clouds? What would happen to the weather? What would happen to the temperature on the earth? Pollen wouldn't even be able to be spread. Plants couldn't germinate. I mean, I know bugs do it, but the wind also does it as well. And I read the other day, just came across this in my browsing of the internet, about sailors talking about glassy sea conditions, stuff that you can see on a lake a lot of times when it's still, that it'll be nice and smooth, but that this thing rarely happens on the ocean because the ocean is so big and there's so much going on. But a lot of times in the Mediterranean and even out in open ocean, there are conditions where these guys have been out on boats and it goes glassy smooth. There's no waves. It's totally still. And this is probably, you'd see it probably more so in the sailing days, when you were dependent on the wind, and it's probably not something you want to see. Today we have motors to move the boats. But everything would stop, and they said you could see, it was a glassy as far as the eye could see, but then you start to see ripples and waves and know that there was a front of air moving towards you. Kind of reminds me of being at an amusement park, and it was kind of an overcast day when it rain. You hear screams from the other side of the park as the rain began to fall, and the screams would get closer and closer as the rain began to fall uh, across the park. And the same thing here with the wind it'd be glassy smooth, and then you see the wind. But in this time, the whole place is going to go smooth. These waves are churned up by the wind, in large part. Yeah, the moon pulls on gravity, and you get tides, and that sloshes it around a bit, too. But the weather is a big part of this. Things would get stale. Things would heat up again. And remember, the sun was darkened, and the moon, and things looked different outside. Again, all this is going to stop. Well, that's unbelievable. Well, yeah, it's not going to happen naturally. It just can't just happen. The the world system is moving. It's going to take divine intervention. And that's exactly what all these judgments are. Divine intervention into these things that are happening on earth. Let's go on. Let's read 2 and 3. It says, Then I saw another angel ascending from the east, having the seal of the living God. And he cried with a loud voice to the four angels to whom it was granted to harm the earth and the sea. So we see that these other angels, they're not just stopping the wind. Their job, their first part, is stopping the wind, and their job is to harm the earth. That stopping the wind, this is going to harm the earth. The earth requires all the cooling and heating. It requires the wind to blow. Animals need it. Everything needs it. It's you know, you take something as important as air movement out, the whole system's going to break. And more than that, they're there to harm the earth, the sea, or the trees. And he says, Do not harm the earth, the sea, or the trees, till we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. That this angel rises from the east, my guess he's coming out of Jerusalem. Uh, And we see, this is a picture for us to see, that there are angels on the earth. We've seen it before. We know in Job, they go to and fro from earth to heaven, uh, that they give an account to God. Uh, Jacob's ladder as well. And Jacob had that vision of angels going up and down from heaven and back. That angels are God's servants. And they're here, whether we know it or not, doing things on the earth. That there's powers and principalities at work, the Bible says. That we can't see that affect nations. That affect spiritual things. When you're praying for something, you may be praying for months like Daniel. And it's not answered because there's a spiritual battle going on. And again, I know that sounds crazy. To a practical person... You can't understand the spiritual things. The man of the flesh can't understand the things of God, the Bible says. But I guarantee you, this is true. This is happening. We begin to even see it that in our day and age, even with people who don't believe in God will start to believe in little green men and creatures from other planets coming down. And UFOs, I say, you don't need to believe in that. Bible already explains to you what all these phenomena are. And they're becoming more and more visible in our day. But here, uh, they are dispatched to, to precise locations on earth for a precise job. And God's saying, it's time to go. Now, I don't know if God is allowing evil angels to work or if these are God's warrior angels and he's dispatched them in this thing. I don't know how, this, how exactly that plays out. But this angel that rises from the east, this guy is the boss. This guy's in charge. But the main goal here is not the destruction of the earth. It's to make sure that the believers during this time are protected that God is providing them protection from judgment. Even now, even though they skipped over it all, even though it took them the tribulation to get saved. Now, to some degree, God is still going to watch out for them. He's going to seal them. This angel is going to go around and mark them with the mark of their God. That way, just remember, if you remember in Passover, they had to mark their doors, right? And the angel of death passed over the houses that had the blood on the doorpost. In the same way, these angels who are out to destroy the earth, are not going to harm these people directly. They may face other consequences from the earth, but these angels are going to go out and mess around with the earth. got to make sure that God's people are marked first, that they can be taken out. And I think it's interesting that these people must also be marked, just as the followers of the Antichrist themselves will receive a mark in, their, in the hand or their forehead, the believers get the mark on the forehead. That there's this clear visual distinction during this time between those who follow God and those who don't follow God. And although the believer's mark may be spiritual, may not be an actual mark in their head, I believe that there may actually be a physical mark on them. Just like there's a physical mark on the Antichrist followers during this time. Because again, when we look at these end times, we're back to a very visceral time in future history. When things that are spiritual are becoming very visual. Things that were once hidden are now being made revealed. Before this age of grace, we lived in a time of the law. We lived in a time of idolatry when more people, when they worship, they worshiped an actual idol and bowed down to it. And there's still vestiges of that today. But most people, when they worship, they don't worship to uh, an idol that they can see. And that's because of the time we live in. But we're beginning to see the times change and people go back to idolatry. And that's going to be the same thing there. And even Second 2 Corinthians, Paul says to us, 1, 21 and 22, he says, Now, he who establishes us with you, that's God, in Christ and has anointed us is God, who also has sealed us and given us the Spirit in our hearts. as guaranteed that you know that you and I as believers now are marked. We are marked by the Holy Spirit. But in this time, the Holy Spirit's left. The Holy Spirit's gathered up the church Gone to heaven and said, You guys are on your own. God still preaches the gospels we'll see, angels flying in heaven, and these people obviously come to faith in God in this time without the same work of the Holy Spirit that, that He's doing now. I know God's working in that time, but it's not we're in a special time, guys, when when any of us can receive the Holy Spirit easily by just believing. And so we're marked. And in our age of grace, the Holy Spirit. It is your mark and my mark. It's our guarantee that we're going to heaven. If you're afraid not going to heaven, consider the Holy Spirit. And all of a sudden you're comforted and you go, I know I'm going to heaven because i got the Holy Spirit in me. Mm. It's not just me and me anymore. I'm possessed by the living God. Mm. He's the proof of our salvation. The proof of us being set apart. Again, it's not a physical mark on you and I. It's a spiritual one. And you know what? If you and I as believers look at someone else's life, We can see if it's there or not. Maybe our vision always will be perfect, maybe it'll be hard to tell, maybe we won't know for sure. But I guarantee if you look and look at a real believer, it should be very clear. And you and I as believers, that should be convicting. Is the mark of God's Holy Spirit on us clear to other people, even unbelievers? They might not know it's the Holy Spirit. When someone doesn't know God looks on our life, do they see anything different? Do they see something in there that shows that we're set apart, that we're holy. I'm going to read again from the Complete Jewish Bible. It's from 1 John 3, 1 through 10. And my kids and I and wife read this last night at Bible time. It says, See what love the Father has lavished on us and letting us be called God's children, for that is what we are. The reason the world does not know us is that it has not known Him. Dear friends, we are God's children now, and it has not yet been made clear what we will become. We do know that when Jesus appears, we will be like him because we will see him as he really is. And that's what Revelation is. We're seeing Jesus as he really is. And everyone who has this hope in him continues purifying himself since God is pure. Everyone who keeps on sinning is violating God's law. Indeed, sin is a violation of God's law. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins and that there is no sin in him So no one who remains united with Jesus continues sinning. How are we united with him? Through salvation, through the Holy Spirit. Everyone who does continue sinning has neither seen him nor known him. That's strong. If you and I continue sinning, it's evidence that we have not seen God nor known him. Children, don't let anyone deceive you. It is a person that keeps on doing what is right who is righteous, just as God is righteous. The person who keeps on sinning is from the adversary. See the, see the contrast here? The clear difference between those of God and those of Satan? And the same thing in the end times. The clear difference between those of God and those of the Antichrist. Because from the very beginning, the adversary has kept on sinning. It was for this very reason that the Son of God appeared to destroy these doings of the adversary. You know that anyone who follows Satan, they're going to keep sinning. They're never going to do anything righteous. Even the things that look righteous in the world's eyes are sin. No one who has God as his father keeps on sinning because the seed planted by God remains in him. That is, he cannot continue sinning because he has God as his father. Here is how one can distinguish clearly between God's children and those of the adversary. Just This is how we can tell now. In the end times, we're going to need the mark. But here, let's read. It says, Everyone who does not continue doing what is right is not from God. That's a bunch of negatives. If you continue in life... Not obeying God, you are not of God. You are not a believer. You are not his child. Likewise, anyone who fails to keep loving his brother is not from God. If you love your brother, if you love fellow Christians, you are following God. If you continue in doing what is right, I'm not saying you're perfect, but when you stumble, you ask for forgiveness, you get up and you pursue righteousness again, you are of God. That's the difference. It's clear as night and day when you really look at it. You can't be a believer and act like you're not, you can't not be a believer and act like you are. But let's go on. Verse 4 through 8. And here's where a lot of people get, get stumbled up. So we're going to dig into this. And it says, And I heard the number of those who were sealed, 144,000 of all the tribes of the children of Israel were sealed. Of the tribe of Judah, 12,000 sealed. Of the tribe of Reuben, 12,000 sealed. Of the tribe of Gad, 12,000 sealed. Of the tribe of Asher, guess how many sealed. 12,000. Tribe of Naphtali, tribe of Manasseh, tribe of Simeon, tribe of Levi, tribe of Issachar, tribe of Zebulun, tribe of Joseph, and the tribe of Benjamin. 12,000 each of those were sealed. It shouldn't be that hard to understand, but apparently it is. We see that there's 144,000 all the tribes of Israel. 12 tribes uh, in 144,000. It's a multiple of 12 there. I want us to take away, before we get into the nitty-gritty and the controversy, the key takeaway from this part of Scripture is that God is not done with Israel or the Jewish people. And we have to remember, as Gentiles, we are grafted in. We are not more important. We need to remember that God cut Israel when they didn't believe in the Messiah and grafted in unbelievers into the family of God. That we, too, are spiritually, in a sense, the fulfillment of Judaism that we are not ethnically Jewish, but spiritually, in a sense, we are. We are Christian. We are the fulfillment, followers of the Messiah, who was the Jewish Messiah. Now, that doesn't mean that you need to keep all the laws of each Jesus is the fulfillment of all those things. That's another study. But sincerely, we're one in Jesus. But interestingly, even out of this tribulation time, when the church is gone, Many, at least 144,000 ethnically Jewish people will come to faith in their Messiah. And what, what a, I love that. I can't wait. I'm going to in heaven and sitting there eating my heavenly popcorn, watching on the heavenly flat screen, watching these Jewish people come to faith. And I'm going to rejoice. I can't wait to meet them. Because for me, I love seeing that. I'm Irish, right? A little bit of Irish, a little bit of English, a little bit of all these things. I'm, I, I went to Ireland years ago. It was fun. Watched the movie, uh, Irish movie, night. it was interesting. But it's not my identity. In high school, we'd joke around and make fun of me for the potato famine, the Irish potato famine. You know, we'd have all sorts of fun with it. But it's not my identity. But imagine if, for me, if Jesus was Irish, and I was ethnically Irish, and I rejected him, my people have rejected him, all of a sudden I came to faith in him. How awesome that would be. What a fulfillment physically, spiritually, mentally, emotionally, historically, societally, culturally, everything fulfilled. And I love seeing that for the Jewish people. When they come to faith and they realize all of my history, all of the things I was taught growing up, all of my national and ethnic culminate, you know, culture culminate in this, of me becoming God's child spiritually, not just physically, but spiritually. And everyone who turns to Yahweh is equally special. You don't need to be Jewish. You don't need to convert to Judaism to be saved. But what's great is that even though now is the age of the Gentiles, God uses that to get them jealous to turn back to Him. And then when all this stuff happens, it's like their eyes are open. They're like, oh my goodness, we missed it. We missed the Messiah. Forgive us, Yeshua HaMashiach. Jesus, our Savior. And we're grafted in with Him. And it's interesting, uh, this list of tribes here. We see Judah, Reuben, Gad, Asher, Naphtali, Manasseh, Simeon, Levi, Issachar, Zebulun, Joseph, and Benjamin. All the the 12 sons, right? But we have to remember that at this point in history, as far as I understand, their tribal ancestry is a little lost. It's hard for the Jewish person to to trace their ancestry. I believe they're having trouble, uh, you know, correct me if I'm wrong on this, trying to determine who can be priests as they, (laughs) you know, another end times thing, want to rebuild that temple. And I want to read uh, a little bit of David Guzik commentary. I'm going to read uh, something about this part and something about the 144,000. And I'm reading it, and bear with me as I do it. It's a little technical at points, but I think it says it far better than I could ever articulate. It says, in the listing of tribes, the tribe of Dan is left out. You know, I'm not an expert on the tribes. Some think this is because Dan is the tribe of the Antichrist. Interesting. It's an interesting theory based on Daniel 11.37 and Jeremiah 8.16. Uh, you know, the, some believe the Antichrist may have some Jewish lineage. Uh, but this may or may not be the case. But without any doubt, Dan, at least, was the tribe that introduced idolatry the sedation of Israel. So it's interesting that this tribe that turned idolatry is left out of this list here. But Ezekiel 48 tells us something else. Ezekiel 48 says there's a wonderful redemption for the tribe of Dan because Dan is the first tribe listed in Ezekiel's millennial roll call of the tribes that there's a millennial. After all this happens, there's a thousand year reign of Jesus and the tribes are listed there. And it's also interesting the way that the tribe of Ephraim is referred to. Remember Joseph had two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim and they were counted, right? But he's only counted indirectly. The tribe of Joseph is mentioned instead of Ephraim. Uh, Joseph is usually represented by Ephraim and Manasseh. Uh, But Manasseh is mentioned and by elimination, tribe of Joseph must mean the tribe of Ephraim, but not by name. And perhaps because of a Hosea 14, Ephraim was slighted because the tribe of Ephraim also associated with great idolatry. To remember, this is the end times, that this is the greatest idolatry ever when we worship, well, not me, but people of the earth will worship the Antichrist as God, as a man who ascends to heaven, uh, possessed by Satan, is God. What bigger idolatry is that? In fact, he stands in the rebuilt temple in the Holy of Holies when he proclaims himself God. So talk about idolatry and having these guys be uh, not included is interesting. Well, what about the 144,000? You know, uh, many different groups, again, I'm reading commentary, have claimed to be the 144,000. For example, Jehovah's Witnesses once said that their entire group was 144,000. But this is my favorite part. Then they got to be more than 144,000 Jehovah's Witnesses. So what do they do then? Well, they come up with, a, they change their doctrine. They change their theology. And they say that it's only a select group of witnesses who go to heaven. Well, Man, talk about exclusivity. Talk about disappointment. I can't even get into heaven now. I want to be a Jehovah's Witness, and I'm not even good enough Jehovah's Witness to get into heaven. How does that work? You'd think after 144,000 Jehovah's Witnesses would die, the whole cult would die out. But most Bible scholars either regard 144,000 as the church or as converted Jews, who are still identified as Israelites in some manner. And I, I don't know how where they get the church from. It doesn't make sense. church is gone at this point, but it, and especially because it's Israel. But it's an important issue, because if they are a symbol of the church, then the church is definitely in the Great Tribulation, but sealed for survival through the Great Tribulation. That's what God's doing, is protecting them through this time, just like he protected Noah through the flood, right? But if we look at some facts about 144,000 from Revelation 7 and 14, they give us some better insight and identity. Again, we can't just take one verse and try and make a doctrine out of it. We need to look at the Bible in its whole, and we see that they are called the children of Israel. In 7:4, their tribal affiliation is specific, as we see 7:4 through 8. They seem to be protected and triumphant through the period of God's wrath, meeting with Jesus at Mount Zion as returned in Revelation 14. They are celibate in Revelation 14. They are the beginning of a great harvest Revelation 14. They are marked by integrity and faithfulness, Revelation 14.5. And we look at the Jews, where did the church start? The church started by Jewish disciples of Jesus who became Christian and called others. So this great revival on earth of Christianity was started through the Jewish people and ultimately through the ultimate Jewish person, Jesus. It's interesting also that, um, you know, when you look at these things, that it's, 144,000, it's hard to look at it as symbolic of the church. I, I don't know where anyone even gets that. I feel like anyone who gets that has come to it with a presupposition that God has done with Israel, and he can't be talking about Israel anymore. But that's not clearly not what the Bible says. It says their tribal affiliation is emphatic and known to God. Even This is key. Even if God only knows it, there's absolutely no reason to regard the tribal affiliation as symbolic, not literal. It's interesting. You know, it's like... Even if they've lost their tribal heritage, they don't have a birth certificate that says what tribe they're from. God knows it. God hasn't lost track of these people. God knows every hair on our head. Of course, He knows what tribe they're from. And again, it's difficult to imagine the entire church surviving through tribulation without martyrdom or mining celebrate. Um, you know, it's not, a, it's not a, a church thing to do, it's, it's a Jewish thing to do. Um, and then what greater harvest are they at the beginning of? It's, it doesn't add up for it to be the church. Uh, It's best to see them as specifically chosen Jewish people who come to faith in Jesus, protectively sealed throughout the tribulation as a sign. Just like there are signs and wonders in the heavens, God's also doing signs and wonders among his people. That the whole earth, all of creation, groans for his coming, and all of creation is going to be used as a sign of Jesus, the Messiah, God, the one and only. Near beginning of the harvest of salvation of Israel, seen in Romans and Matthew. And again, personally, while it's a specific number, and it may be a specific number, 144,000, I'm not going to limit God to that. I'm not, God wants everybody to be saved. And I'm also inclined to fall back to, again, what I know about God, that He's perfect. What He does is good and right. And that the number of the Jewish people from the tribe saved here is a perfect number. It's a perfect fulfillment, showing that they are perfected in Him, protected in Him, no matter if it's one 144,000 or a million. I don't know. But remember, Earth's population is decimated in these times. So 144,000 could be, you know, relatively a a majority of the population of them. Again, it's not us. We're in the Age of Grace. It's not the Jehovah's Witnesses. And again, what an arrogant thought to think that there will only be 144,000 people ever going to heaven out of the billions of people and then only in the end times, Jehovah's Witnesses have propped up in the last century or two. How exclusive of that. Even when they get more numbers, they say, oh, well, it's still only an exclusive number of us, guys. You new guys, well, you're out of luck. Man, that's not God's heart at all. That's not the Bible at all. It's a cult. Get out. Read the word in its entirety. Let the scripture interpret the scripture because God's word is specific, it's a sharp, two edged sword. Of the piece pierced between bone and marrow, truth and lies, cults and real relationship. Let's go on. Let's read 9 through 12. So don't get caught up in that. Let's go. And after these things I looked, John says, and behold, a great multitude which no one could number, of all nations, tribes, peoples, and tongues, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed with white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice saying, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels stood around the throne and the elders and the four living creatures and fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom, thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. So here we go. We go from 144,000 to a great multitude which no one could number. I don't care how big your abacus is, what kind of facial recognition software you got, you're not going to be able to count all these people. And this is heaven, guys. There's so many people, don't even try and count how many people are in heaven because there's room for everyone. Everyone who ever lived could have gone to heaven. They didn't. They're not. But God made room for them. And now we'll see that this specific group is from the tribulation. That this specific group later on, when we read the next section, we learn that there are the martyred ones. But bear with me here. I believe it also shows the greater picture of heaven. It's like a little slice. If all these people came out of the tribulation, of course God's going to have done that throughout all of history. He wouldn't discriminate against people of the past. He would have given everybody on earth an opportunity to come to him. I've read a few books about uh, missionaries and how God has reached people groups that were unreached and even woven and reached them um, when they were seeking Him. But we see all nations, all tribes, all languages, whether you're black, white, yellow, red, brown, whether you speak English, Spanish, Latin, Amazonian, some Amazonian language, Native American tribe, Italian, Aborigine, whether you lived in 1920s Canada, 2000 BC, Egypt, the Roman Empire, the Ming Dynasty, feudal Japan, God wanted you. And God reached out to you. And again, not that those nations love God or are in heaven just because they existed on earth, but undoubtedly in every time and every place in history have come to faith in the true and living God whether it's by missionary or divine revelation. I've heard stories of even people in in locked Muslim countries even today where God just shows up to them and they come to faith in Jesus for who he really is. We have to remember, after all, Abram, he wasn't Jewish. God made the Jewish nation out of him. He was from Ur of Chaldees. The Jews didn't even exist yet until God called this man out of ancient Iraq. There were no Jewish people. God took a Gentile, and made it into the Jewish people. Oh, that's tough. What was interesting is that these guys in heaven, these men and women, have palm branches in heaven. Isn't that call your mind back to the story of Easter, a week before Easter, the triumphal entry when Jesus comes into Jerusalem on the donkey and they what, they put palm branches before their king to worship him. And all these people of every tribe, language, and tongue, and nation, color, and size, and creed, They have this one creed they have this one voice it says salvation belongs to our god who sits on the throne and to the lamb that's our unification as christians jesus being saved by him and for me i think that's one of the best parts of being a believer in some way is that when we meet people in the church you meet other believers they don't have to look like you they don't have to be the same age as you they don't have to like the same things you do they may do a totally different walk in life than you do but when you connect with them, when you have that fellowship with them in Jesus, there's a bond there that's deeper than any sports team affiliation. Any, you know, we have friends out here from New York, and that's an interesting bonding point because we both came from upstate New York. If I tell you, I could be friends with someone from China who is old and I know same life experience with, but if they love Jesus and I love Jesus, there's gonna be a bond there that's tighter than anything. And these people have a huge worship session in heaven. The multitude, the elders, the angels all worshiping. And it's almost this call and response going on in the heavens um, where uh, the multitude says, salvation belongs to our God and who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And the elders and the angels respond and they say, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom, thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. That it's our God. Yes, he was Jewish and out of the Jewish people, but he's the God of all those who call on him. To be saved, all you have to do is call on the name of Jesus. And we see just a wonderful worship in heaven here. Let's go on and finish out this chapter. It says, Then one of the elders answered John, saying to him, Who are these arrayed in white robes, and where do they come from? The elders, the elder knows, but he's asking if John knows. And John says to him, Sir, you know. So he said to me, These are the ones who came out of the great tribulation and washed their robes, and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. I love the power of the blood, that it doesn't stain red, it makes white. Uh, you know, I spilled some of my uh, Mio water in the car yesterday and it got Ash's cup, and it could possibly stain something, but God's blood doesn't stain, it cleans. And 15, therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple, and he who sits on the throne will dwell among them. They shall neither uh, hunger anymore or thirst anymore. The sun shall not strike them, nor any heat. For the Lamb who sits, who is in the midst of the throne—excuse me—will shepherd them and lead them to living fountains of waters. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. What a promise! And I love in the beginning how John doesn't assume anything here. That when uh, the elder asks him what he's seeing, if he knows what it means, John doesn't go, "Well, you know, I think it's this." He goes, "Sir, you know." John doesn't want any assumption, any explanation from his own mind, his own heart about the heavenly things he's seeing. He wants the heavenly answer for the heavenly visions. You know what? So should you and I. When we come to the scripture, we should not try and read into it. We should not make it say what we want it to say, what we think it says. We need to ask God. When I study, when I preach, I ask God, show me, Lord, teach me. I don't always get it right, but there's things that God shows me that I didn't see on my own. There's things that God uh, reveals that is clear with Scripture. Whether we're listening to a message or coming to our own study together in our own time, or even together here. But we see clearly here that there's a different role for the tribulation state in heaven, that the people who are martyred, who get the robes, just like the 12,000 Jews, they're in their own sort of group here. And they serve God before the throne day and night in his temple. Now, there's no night in heaven, but it's kind of saying all the time. that These people are equally in heaven, just as happy as anyone else, just as fulfilled as anyone else. But I believe that since they waited until the end, they passed by the age of grace and it took them this harsh discipline and fear of death to come to them. They have a little bit of a different role in heaven. One of service in heaven, while ours is more of a role of rest. But their service, like the priest, is meant to be restful, though. And I don't want to dig, I don't want to get this one verse and make a big doctrine out of it. We just talked about that, right? But th- that's sort of the impression that I get here from the scripture. But what's promised to them is no more pain, tears, thirst, or hunger. That all these trials that they were going through in tribulation of the tribulation are over. They're in heaven. They're protected, they're shepherded, and they're cared for forever. And that's our hope in heaven. That anything we're going through right now will be over. Like, I mean, in America, as tough as things are getting, it's not that tough on the grand scale. I'm not saying it's not hard. am not trying to belittle it for people going through things. But even if it's really hard or not so hard, we have the hope of heaven that one day it's all going to be over. We're not going to pay taxes, worry about paying our bills, and do all those things or be persecuted, or hungry, or burned by the sun. But you know what? You and I do not want to be around for what's coming. You don't want to be around for the tribulation. You know what? This is what woke me up and brought me back to Jesus. Was seeing the things in the world, my, dis- my discontent in the world, my depression, my struggle with sin, and, and remembering back to the Bible, and God convicting me and showing me that what I was doing was wrong, and that the world was coming to an end. As I began to reread Revelation and read uh, the Left Behind books, it became clear that it was all coming together. That the world was all getting ready for the end. That the systems were all being set up for the Antichrist, one world government. The cry of the world was for it. And this was nearly 20 years ago, 17 years ago. How much more so now? It was clear to me that I wasn't going to heaven that all this stuff was about to happen and it brought me to faith in Jesus. And it wasn't necessarily the fear of the discipline or the fear of going through it that maybe confessed, like, oh, I just don't want to get in trouble. I just don't want to be around for the tribulation. It was exciting seeing that the Bible was coming true before my very eyes. But what really got me was that, you know what? I know that Jesus is real and he is who he is. I know that I'm sinning and I don't want to do it anymore. I want Jesus. I don't want to be around for the revelation but my main motive was man I was, I was down, I was broken and I needed my savior. But as you look around in the world and see these things happen even if you don't feel like you're doing anything wrong if you don't know God this is your destiny. Even if you think you're morally right that doesn't stand in place of Jesus' rightness and holiness He's holy. He's right. And we can't compare to that. He took the cross for us. So if that's you and you know that you're not going to heaven if you were to die today, would you pray this prayer with me? Lord Jesus, I know you're real. I've been not denying it for a long time. I've been thinking the things that I do are good enough. Maybe I've even believed that there's no right or wrong, but God, The more I go on and the more I hear, the more I think about it, it's clear that there's a right and there's a wrong. And more than that, that you are the only one who's right. The only one who's holy. God, forgive my sin. Make me your child. Help me follow you in these days that are hard. Help me trust you and learn your word. Teach me the difference between right and wrong. And help me to live rightly and teach others as well. Thank you, God for forgiving my sin in jesus name amen and if you've prayed that prayer or something very similar know that you're saved know that you have the holy spirit as a guarantee god would you fill anyone who's prayed that prayer whether here in this message or elsewhere fill them god that they would have that guarantee and know that they're safe and going to heaven and give them the strength to walk righteously give us all the strength god as these days get harder and darker And the difference between right and wrong becomes so clear that those who are doing right will be persecuted, even in our land. Be with those in China and elsewhere in Asia and uh, Islamic countries. Give them strength and bring their captors to know you. God bless our family and our friends. May they all know you and follow you and trust you. And come soon, we pray. And God, uh, let all the number be counted that you can come back and call us home. Look forward to that day. Thank you, God, for your word, and we can trust it. Uh, And we bless your name, in Jesus' name. Amen. So may God bless you and keep you and his face shine upon you forever and ever. There is a vineyard of the Lord. There is a vineyard for our soul. With all our troubles left behind the door, we drink first light until the door.